Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and our allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And today, I am beyond thrilled and honored to have the team from the new amazing documentary, Disclosure, director and co-producer Sam Fetter, producer Amy Shoulder, and executive producer and actress Laverne Cox, Welcome, all of you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you, David. Sam, I'll start with you. Why don't you take us through how this film came about and when you started and and the first steps? You know, there are two documentaries that really changed my life that I'm sure you and I talked about when we first met, um, Ethnic Notions and Celluloid Closet. Ethnic Notions is about the representation of black people in film in Hollywood, and Celluloid Closet is about the representation of gay and lesbian people in Hollywood. And I always wanted to see that film made about trans people. I wanted to see that history. Um, fast forward to 2013, 2014, trans visibility was increasing, mainstream society was talking about us more than before, but there were two things that were really disconcerting to me in the way the media was talking about trans lives, as if visibility was the only goal and as if we were something new, right? So I felt deeply compelled to give trans and non-trans people more context to understand these changes in our culture, in our history, and how we got to this point of visibility. And to not lose sight of the fact that visibility in itself is not the goal. It's just a means to an end. And that we've always been here. And so I knew there was a lot more to the story than what the public was seeing and talking about, and I wanted to tell that story. This has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know what gets 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't, you'd have to give out money to everyone watching (laughs) it to get a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know how you do that, except make a movie that is like so good that to give it a negative review is almost like, like what's wrong with you? I so need to tweet that, I need to tweet that immediately before the rating goes down. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's epic. I just have to air a grievance here. You know, know, this is so- You're gonna do the 3%, you're gonna gonna bring up someone who did the 3%. Yes, I am. Oh no, it's I'm I'm really bad, and maybe like Laverne can give me some- Are you really focusing on the 3% Sam right now? I knew Laverne would help me with this. I need need to do some spiritual work. But this is the way the brain works. Like we scan for the negative, right? Talk Sam, yes. And and I actually, there's two negative reviews that I, I haven't read them. But one person told me about one of them, and it sounds like the person didn't even watch the film. And that, and that was really, that was kind of hurtful, and that makes me angry, right? It's like, at least if you're, if you're going to criticize, bring it. I'm a, I'm a critic. I love to critique things. But, like, have it be factual, right? But like, there are a lot of film critics that don't, like, they make, you know, they don't bug watch kiss, the work. And, they, and some of them don't watch the film, so. <laughs> that's what it felt like. Yeah. But, again, you know, it's ridiculous. There was two negative ones, and that's, like, what I focus on. So I'm so <laughs> grateful because I know there's so many amazing ones. And I think what's mostly coming, you know, what's really impacting me the most right now is that we, the privilege we have right now to be part of this conversation you know, mm-hmm. that the country is, is, is so into right now. And then the fact that the country is ready to do this sort of work. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I think that I feel really honored to be able to contribute in this way. And that that's not lost on me at all. I mean, Laverne can speak to this. I think that trans issues in the last five years, especially in the gay community and especially like in the, you know, the gay film festival community and like all the, like the media, has really blown up in a way that I have never seen it before in a, in a wonderful way. Um, the visibility is now, 
at a level that I would not have been able to even believe about a decade ago, which is an enormously rapid change. I mean, what led to this? <laughs> Hi. Uh, <laughs> Laverne's um, just like, it's me. <laughs> I, I, I'm not that, I'm not that arrogant and full of myself. Um, well, you're part not, of it though. You were a big part of it. I, but, but, but if I'm being really, you know, being really um, intentional and accurate about it. I think it's a lot of things. I'm blessed that I got to be a huge part of this, but I think it's about a community that, because of social media, had a voice in a new way that we didn't have before, right? So that we, what Disclosure um, exposes is that there's always been this interest and fascination with trans people, right? There's always been this interest and fascination with gender, traversing gender expectations. That has existed since the beginning of cinema. And now, trans people, because of social media and YouTube, have a voice and have, are in that those voices can be amplified. And there has been decades of movement building that has, has, has been pushing and pushing and pushing for more and better representations. I mean, Gladys existed since 1985, right? So they, they've been doing that work and, and activists have been doing work on the ground and artists have been doing work. And so there's just been a lot of decades of a lot of activism that have coalesced with social media and a moment and timing. And so I think it's a lot of things and I'm, I'm grateful that I've lived long enough <laughs> to um, be a beneficiary of this moment, but I, I am here and this moment is here as a result of decades long activism and, and social media and just trans people being fed up. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I, as a cis white gay dude, stand on the shoulders of trans women of color because, I mean, what was Stonewall except, you know, there's always people debating whatever, but, I mean, it's pretty clear that trans women of color had a huge part in initiating and, and continuing the Stonewall riots of 69, which, you know, kind of kicked off the gay rights movement in America. I think, too, I mean, we, we say trans women and we use that language, but I would, I think trans femmes, right? I think okay. if we use the term femmes, because then I think if we incorporate the fluidity of gender expression, of, of, like, we didn't, they didn't use the term non-binary at the time, but, like, the fluidity of gender expression, right? So there were, these were femmes of color, I would say, and they were also, there were sex workers. You know, these were also people Stonewall my understanding of, uh, of history is that Stonewall was a bar where when Miss um, Major talks about it they were a lot of sex workers a lot of people who were homeless and they worked the streets Miss Major says that you know they would go to Stonewall and they'd be like how much money did you make tonight you know with that kind of right. that was the situation at Stonewall it was not this sort of yuppie middle class like you know white gay bar where like you know like white gay yuppies hung out it was like it was that was not my understanding of stonewall i obviously was not alive there's a lot of reading about stonewall so people who were alive please feel free to correct me but my understanding is that stonewall was like it was you know but i think what you're speaking to laverne also just makes you think about what you say in the film was it was people who had nothing left to lose and i think that's yeah. often when we see an uprising yeah but even with allies, I mean, one of the more striking parts of, of the film, and the, of, and the film has many striking parts, uh, was the Katie Couric thing. Um, when you went on Katie Couric and she she asked questions that were kind of gross and not really cool and, and in, a, in a blind way, but not necessarily in a malicious way, more like in a prurient way, like trying to raise eyebrows. But then, she, like, ostensibly in the film, she did the right thing. 
she brought people back and she wanted to like grow and learn from that. I think it's it's such a rare example of what accountability looks like publicly. I think we don't see enough examples of this. And I, and I wish, I would love to have more examples of Katie's, one of the few I think we have publicly, of someone saying, I've made a mistake or I've acted in a way that like I, that how do I make amends? How do I be teachable? And how do I do better? And then become an ally for that community. It's such a beautiful example of, of, of how people can be transformed. And I think this is why I'm not an advocate of cancel culture, right? Because people can have, could you imagine if people like cancel Katie and then like she didn't have this opportunity yeah. to become this amazing ally for our community. But then it's like, the question is like every single journalist, talk show host asked these questions of trans people. Every single yeah. one. This was not unusual. So that Kate, people cringe now, which is, I mean, that's probably, the people cringe now is like, okay, great. But this was standard operating procedure. When a trans person was on a talk show, you ask those questions. That's just what happened. And so the fact that now we cringe, now we have, now that the conversation has been changed, we understand that these questions are dehumanizing, that they objectify us and reduce us to our, our bodies and, now that we understand that, that is, that's just, I think that's beautiful. But that goes back to disclosure itself in the film. And basically, I think one of the reasons that you don't get as many of the cringy, I'm sure they're out there, but as many of the cringy interviews is because trans people are out there and you can see them. And, you know, suddenly genitals are not the first thing that popped to your mind to ask, you know? But also the moment, what I, what I like to be, what I like to remind myself of, and this is why I can't be arrogant and think this is all about me. When the Katie Couric interview happened, along with Carmen Carrera, bless, like, not erase Carmen from that moment, please. Oh yeah, that, absolutely. That there was an entire community of trans people who've been watching these kinds of interviews for decades, who had been, who had had it, who spoke up and spoke out. So that there was a level of support from the ground from trans people and our allies who were like, finally, right? We're having a pushback from this. And so this was about a movement. This was about a movement of, of people. And that is that is the thing. When I when I think about what's happening in the streets now, this is about a movement of people. People can make a difference in, in, in things. And I think with our government, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard and it's frustrating. But the people can make a change. So Laverne, I heard that the way you got involved with this was a very interesting story, that you came incognito to an <laughs> Outfest panel, a pa you know, and, and... Not fully incognito. Not you were not fully incognito? incognito. You, were, you were somewhat incognito. Please tell me you were wearing like the baseball cap and the big sunglasses or something. Very, very no, LA incognito. I was wearing, I was wearing big sunglasses and I didn't... <laughs> I don't think I was not wearing my. I, I have my um my incognito. I say incognito. <laughs> <laughs> um, drag. Uh, yeah, I mean you know whatever. I wasn't like I wasn't. It wasn't a full because I can be incognito. I can I can go there. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't a full. It wasn't a full situation. Apparently, I was very recognizable to Mr. Fader uh, when while he was giving his presentation. So yes, I went. To, I just randomly went to an Outfest event one Saturday, mainly because I was missing community and I saw that Angelica Ross and Jen Richards were on a panel and I was like, oh, I want to go and be with my people. That was just that, it was just that. And Sam happened to be giving a presentation that day. And that's, that reaffirmed that there are no mistakes in God's universe, that, that there was a reason I was there and, that day. And uh, meeting Sam was that reason. So Amy, and Amy, Amy was there too. 
I met Amy that day, too. Hey, so, girl. So you met both of them that day. So Amy, Amy, <laughs> let's go to you. How did you come on the project? Hey, Laverne, I was actually sitting behind you, Laverne, so I was... <laughs> I was so excited because Sam and I had talked for a long time about how our dream come true would be if you would join our our project and if you we manifested meet you. me. You manifested me. Yes. <laughs> this is very the secret. So mm-hmm. anybody who wants Laverne to jump on their project, all you need to do <laughs> start it, start picky. start yeah start I mean, a not, book and not to toot. My own horn, but she's very, <laughs> very picky. And anyway, how did Sam and Amy, how did you guys meet and hook up and, and start this? Um, well, you know, we, I, mean, uh, I mean, we knew each other in New York, sort of. I, I mean, I knew who Amy was. Um, you know, Amy's a legend in, in sort of the radical, progressive, particularly publishing world, but just, you know, sort of in an activist community. Um, so I knew of her and her work, and... When I was finishing up my last film, I did a sneak peek because my last one was about Kate Bornstein and, and she was sick. And so I, I hurried up and wanted um, her to see the film and her close friends to see it because I wasn't sure if she'd be around. She still is, but at the time we weren't sure. And Amy was on that invite list. And so uh, Amy saw that film and I knew Amy was there. And then I think we became friendly sort of after that. But fast forward about a year later, or a year and a half later, Amy invited me, she was invited to curate a show at the Hammer Museum, and she programmed my film to be part of that show. Oh, and wow. from there, we became friends. And then about a year after that, I was coming out here to do research to Los Angeles, and I you know, emailed everyone I knew, anybody have a sublet or a couch or whatever, and Amy was like, uh, you want to watch my cat? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and I heard she had a nice apartment, so I was like, yeah. And then, so I went and, and we had dinner before I watched her cat. And I told her about this film. And she was like, you know, um, or no, you pick up from there. Then what happened, Amy? Well, (laughs) (laughs) I really loved Sam's film. I've known Kate for a long time. I've published Kate. Um, I come from the publishing world, as Sam said, and in the mid-'80s started to publish underrepresented folks. And that began when I was at City Lights, and, you know, was starting to kind of realize that the voices of America that I wasn't seeing um, in, in publishing and in the written word and in storytelling were, uh, well, from many communities. Um, so Kate was certainly one of the first people I was starting to identify as an essential voice, um, along with Sapphire, who was writing in Harlem, and June Jordan mm. was across the bay in Berkeley writing lo- lesbian love poems for the first time, and mm. um, uh, David Warnerovich was writing about the AIDS epidemic and his own That must have mortality. been amazing, just an amazing wow. time. So it became my calling to publish these voices but fast forward to 2014, I was um, taking a pause in that work, saw Sam's film and just thought it was extraordinary and thought that the way that he centered Kate's voice and centered Kate's story was so interesting and uh, important. uh, And I wanted to bring it to an LA audience that I had an opportunity to share the film with. And when Sam then said to me, 
what the next project was, it just seemed uh, one brilliant, two, I knew Sam as an artist was going to make um, uh, an ethical and important film, and three, I wanted to, to help to bring that vision forward. So that's how I got involved. No one can say this isn't an important and amazing film. Uh, and anyone who sees this will will come away with that, except perhaps the 3% that Sam is going to be obsessed with for the next, you know, <laughs> however many years. Um, who didn't watch the movie? You know, going back to that, I had read, I had read that <laughs> when you hear something negative, it stays in your consciousness seven times as much as a positive. So even if you multiply it, it's only 21% and you're way <laughs> over the limit. So... Can I can I comment on that? I think what, what's interesting about that is that our nervous systems, as human beings, we are programmed to look for the threat, right? Yeah, so that exactly. so that the negative comment sticks um, neurobiologically because we are programmed to look for the threat, and so I think that like. It, it, if we can begin to think about re, how do we reset our nervous systems? How do we move from the place of the fight, flight, or freeze, right? Because mm-hmm. when we're looking for the threat, that means we're in the fight, flight, or freeze. We're in survival. And trans people have been in survival for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And black people have been in survival for a very long time. But the, the space of the, our ultimate resilience uh, being in our prefrontal cortex is in like in our the, just the, the, the juicy place we want to be in is beyond that survival place. So, and I think like being in the gratitude of the 97%, 97%, that is, that is absolutely beautiful. How do we energetically, the gratitude and then turn up the volume on that gratitude so that the, that gratitude can just overshadow, overpower that 3%. And ideally it should, because it's 97%, but like that's the moving out of the, we have to get our nervous systems out of the fight, flight, or freeze, Sam. You gotta mm-hmm. move out of the out of the fight, flight, or freeze. It's also about reframing. And, yes. and that's something that I think artists do. I mean, we do that. We look at things from a different perspective. We, we see something good, bad, or whatever, and we say like, what if this weren't good? What if this weren't bad? What, like, you know, we, we, we tend to kind of shift things, so we have that ability to do that. And I think one of the brilliant things about this film is it takes all of these moments from all of these pieces of media that all of us have, or most of us have seen. I'm a film nerd, so I've seen a lot of this stuff. And it shows you this from a very specific point of view that I've never been in, and it opened my eyes. It opened my eyes to a lot of things. One of the things I want to ask you, Laverne, one of, when I was doing my research on you, um, you are the first openly transgender person to be nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award. But in an acting, in an acting category. In an acting, right? excuse me, yes, in, in an acting category. But you are not, from what I read, the first transgender person to have been nominated. Correct. Went to Angela Morley. Correct. A British transgender person who I'd never heard of. And so then I went down a rabbit hole of learning all about Angela Morley. And I thought I knew about like, you know, I know Wendy Carlos because I was a Kubrick nerd and all this stuff, but I did not know this person. <laughs> she she was nominated for like a couple of Academy Awards and like stuff and, and nobody- and won, and won multiple Emmys. I didn't know about Angela Morley either until I was nominated and then I saw the first person, <laughs> I, saw, I was like, and all the information, I didn't know who Angela Morley was either and I went in the rabbit hole as well. Isn't that exciting? It is. That she, she was composing before she transitioned and then transitioned and continued to work and composed in many Emmy nominated and Emmy award winning scores for different um, variety project shows, et cetera, yeah. And there's an actress in Disclosure who passed 
for what, decades. And, and who did and, not disclose? Let's 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 maybe rethink the language of passing. Oh, I'm sorry. And what, uh, no, no, no. I mean, it's it's all good. You know, language is also a place of struggle. Bell hooks. No, please us. educate um, me. Instead of pa- passing, is such is so loaded. It's such mm-hmm. a loaded um, term for me. Instead of passing, not disclosing that she's trans, right? Because right. she's she's a woman, and passing as a woman, passing as herself. So she was she just chose not to disclose her transness and was not questioned. Right, and and had a career that lasted decades. I'm, I'm forgetting yeah. her name. Forgive me. Sandra um, Cobb. Sandra Cobb, yes. Unbelievable career. I, I looked yeah. her up as well. I was just like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, what a what a life and what a career. And, yeah. and to think there are all these artists, there are all these artists that have contributed in front of the camera and behind the camera throughout like this medium's history that we have not given the due to. We have not actually seen well, them for who they are. That. Part of that is the protocols, right? When um, when Harry Benjamin came up with the standards of care for trans people in the 1950s and 60s, that standard of care was that you transition and never disclose that you're trans, right? That was the way to survive. That was the way that you were supposed to live. And so we had a medical industry that said you are not supposed to disclose. So part of it was that that was just the medical protocol, right? So for decades. So a lot of the reasons why we don't, I would love to give give them their due, but we they, they living stealth was the way to survive. Living stealth was part of what you were supposed to do medically, right. and that's just the way it is. And it's and it's sad because for young trans people, for this young trans person when I when I was young, <laughs> that I knowing the Ajita Vegeta Wilsons and the Sandra Caldwells and the Tracy Africas and the Alicia Brevards and mm-hmm. oh my gosh and the many other others who whose names I don't know would have been so empowering for me. And hopefully now we'll know those names and we'll say those names and celebrate those names and if there's some other trans folks out there who you know, have been <laughs> living stealth for a while, maybe they'll you know say, "Hey, I w- I've been doing it too." It's, um, it's feel so safe important to do that. Yeah, but we have to feel safe. I mean, I think a lot of the thing, the reason, I mean, it's so moving when I met Sandra. Oh, it was so I, I get goosebumps every time I think about it. Her her mother, when my when I was in the cover of Time magazine, her mother called her the way she told me. To, um, anyway, the first time we met, she said she her mother called her and said, "Now you don't have to be afraid anymore." Like that, that her mother was terrified that something would happen to her. That like that 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 your life was in danger if people found out you were trans. That it was not safe to to, to be openly trans. And those are the circumstances we we need to change. Everyone talks about making movies being a marathon, not a sprint, and that is especially true of documentaries. So. This took six, five or six years to make? Five years, yeah, five years. How do you keep up the energy? I, I don't know. Uh, let me think of a good answer for that. Um, it's a sheer perseverance. When I was in my 20s, that was advice someone else gave me because um, I was like, I don't know if I'm inherently talented. I don't know if I'm smart. I don't know if blah, 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 blah. But I know I want to do this. I think I have something to say. And their advice was like, it doesn't actually matter about if you're, <laughs> those other things. It's like persevere. That's like persist, persist, persist. That's really, unfortunately, (laughs) how to get anywhere in this society, for better or for worse. But then as I was thinking about that, I think there is a lot of privilege wrapped up in the ability to persevere. So I I don't know if that's the answer anymore. Um, But how I kept going, um, I had a really great producer. Oh. Yeah, I, you know, this was a really hard, hard project. 
And when I finished my last film, I, I didn't want to make films anymore, quite honestly. And I certainly didn't want to spend five years on one project. And we started this film, or when it, you know, once, once Trump got elected, I started questioning the utility of this project. And Amy kept bringing it back to that art does change things. Art is really important in moments like this. I don't know if I would have stuck with it if I didn't have a team. I've always done my films alone. And so after my last one, I was like, it's not worth it. It's too lonely, too isolating. It's too painful, too exhausting. Um, so I don't know. I do think I attribute a lot of that to Amy. Well, it's amazing to have a great producer. Sorry. Amy, what? How'd you stay yeah, how'd you Amy, with it? <laughs> Amy, how did you keep up with it? You know, once we got started and I joined Sam about half a year into his process, so I've been on working on it for, you know, it was four and a half years. And once we got started, there was no question. I, I never thought for a minute that we wouldn't finish it. Um, it was sometimes like how and when, but it was so clear to me the importance um, of the work we were doing, not only um, because I was hopeful that we would make a beautiful, impactful film, but because of how we were making it, that our production model early on said to me, you know, when we put our crew together, our production crew, I want it all trans, and if we can't hire trans people, let's prioritize um, who we're going to hire and let's make sure we train trans people so that we have in future trans people to hire. It made so much sense to think about what this set was going to look like and have people come on um, talking about their lives and how how our cast would feel uh, on that set. You know, I mean, talk about advice for filmmakers. I mean, you know, I think when you have certain principles that are close to your heart, you cannot compromise, even though, for example, this principle was challenged over and over again. People would say to me, oh, well, you know, that's a, that's a nice idea, but, but you know, you want to get the best people. Um, the kind of insult around that uh, disrespect was something that we put up with to the extent that we just ignored it. And um, Sam was incredibly resourceful in finding um, ways to get the message out that we were looking for trans crew. And we had an environment that was so meaningful when we would shoot and our non-trans crew was training new filmmakers um, their craft. And um, it was an incredible experience. So the process, you know, was also super important and rewarding. And then there was also the challenge, you know, I have to say, like, you know, we, another important principle was that we paid people, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. We raised almost all of the funds for this film and it was, it was a slog, but we felt it was important to pay people who were going to work with us and... Um, including the fellows. Including the fellows, including the PAs, including people who often don't, you know, the interns, you know, it had to be some kind, we had to offer a stipend. We, you know, it was really important to us. And again, you know, the, the way that, you know, especially, um, you know, white men would say to me, oh, do you really think you can raise that money? Granted, this is my first producing credit you know, granted we had an ambitious budget, but I did feel like, you know, would those guys be saying that to someone who had had my career 
um, someone, you know, my age, would they be saying that to me? But I felt like, you know, the sexism inherent in that question and the doubt that that was, you know, over and over something that we had to overcome then became, I think, a, you know, a challenge. And it produced, I think, for, for me, um, some inspiration. Like, no, we're going to do this. And um, there's no question. You know, and I'm not a silver lining person, but I, I do know that having that challenge um, and sticking to our values, that made it so clear that the people who were on board would be steadfast, you know, and they've become our biggest champions and have supported us not only financially, but emotionally and just made so many things possible and have just been with us every step of the way. And that because we don't live in a culture yet that believes in people like me and Amy you know, and Laverne. So, I mean, we were laughed out of a lot of rooms. We were told this would never be a Sundance film by, by another queer person. You know, we were, you know, you know, encouraged to doubt ourselves for years. Um, you know, so it was, it was rough, (laughs) but we did it. And, you know, Amy's, Amy's badass. When you got the call from, I'm guessing Kim Yutani or someone at Sundance. Not Kim, uh, Lauren Chaffee. Oh, yeah, Kim did our introduction, which was amazing at, at Sundance. Which <laughs> she, I tell you she's about fantastic. Too. She was she was without Fest for a very long time before she went full time to Sundance. Yeah. What happened when you got that call? Like, what what did you do exactly? Well, you know, when we submitted, we weren't done. So, like, we wanted to get into Sundance so bad. We knew this was our only chance because we knew we had to finish the film this year. Mm-hmm. So it, it was. We just. We worked so hard to get our submission in. You know, we kept asking for extensions. We submitted something, and I was in conversations with the programmers, and I was like, you know, it was a week, like a week later, I was like, it's even further along. Do you want to see it? <laughs> and they were like, that's okay. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then, like, a few weeks, maybe a week or two after that, I get a phone call at 6 p.m. on, like, a Thursday, and, you know, Amy and I are still working. We were probably working until 9 or 10 that night. I get a call from Lauren and she was just like, hey, I just wanted to let you know your film is going to premiere at Sundance this year. And Unbelievable. I, so you know, good. just full body chills, you know, <laughs> just, and I just was quiet and just started laughing. You know, like, I don't, I just, I didn't know how else to respond. <laughs> I just started laughing. I think I told her I loved her. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then called Amy, you know, and then I think we just dropped our work and for dinner, you know, um, it was great. You know, it's, 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 it was, such, it was really thrilling. It was thrilling to be there. Well, one of the most important keys on any documentary is the editor. And we cannot talk about this movie without kind of tipping our hat to Stacy Goldate, the mm-hmm. editor who did a job that I can only say is remarkable. And it's remarkable, not only in style, it's remarkable in restraint. And we were talking about, uh, the Jen Richards moment, which is a two-minute uninterrupted, or it's 90 seconds, 90 or 100 seconds, almost two minutes, of her just talking about her own experiences off the cuff, unscripted, and going through, like, something that I have almost never seen in a movie. And it was like, it was somebody that you're interviewing literally having a moment where she realized something about herself and how she views her life. And you got it on camera and it is uninterrupted. It is just there and it is completely, profoundly shattering. How did you feel when you were shooting her? 
Oh, I knew that was, I thought it would be the end of the film. I was like, that sums it all up. But then, you know, as we're editing, it's like, it's, it's not the end of the film, but it's the beginning of the end, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, certainly there were times, you know, when we were first working with that clip in particular, we, we, it, it, it is long, you know, and, our, and uh, we tried, we tried different ways of trimming it and it was not nearly as effective. Um, you know, Stacy, I interviewed probably 30 editors uh, oh when God. I was looking for an editor and... I think I started looking in October of 2018 and then didn't, you know, really finalize things with Stacy until March of 2019 because I knew this, there would be a dearth of editors who were going to be a right fit. And I had a lot of qualifications that an editor had to meet. And what Stacy brought was that she had the experience of working with archival footage. So she knew uh, the process, she had a really good process of going into it and organizing it. And also Stacy's part of the community. And so I was, I did not want to have to explain my existence to my editor. Right. Right. And in a lot of my interviews, I had to explain my existence when I was interviewing editors, you know? So I was like this, uh, your relationship with your editor is so intimate. Um, it's so intense that, um, it's that I, you know, I knew what my boundaries were going to be. Uh, and so, so Stacy had the, that experience with archival footage. And also when I was interviewing Stacy, the first time I interviewed her, she was actually not available, but she still met with me for a couple hours and gave me advice about how to edit, you know, how to kind of approach using this sort of footage and being able to create fair use arguments for it. And I thought that was really generous. And, you know, I really saw her expertise in that. And we, we worked, I think it was a 10 month editing process. We were in it. Did you end up like uh, licensing any footage or was it all fair use? It was mostly, mostly fair use. Um, it had to be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a really stringent process to meet those requirements. Just so anybody knows, uh, fair use is basically how a lot of documentaries use footage that they then don't clear. But in, legally, what you can do is you can use footage if you're referring to it, if you're talking about that footage or about something in that footage. But you can't use footage if it's for its own sake or its entertainment value. So basically every single shot in this film or any documentary that does this, which is a lot of them, has to have an argument for why that shot is there that is explicit, explicitly dealt with in the film. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to, to live by those standards. Yeah, you yeah. have to make an original argument um, mm -hmm. about the footage that you're using and, and then only use the amount of footage to, to prove that point. But to make a documentary on a budget, is like there's no other way to do it because the, the cost of licensing that many clips would be easily millions of dollars, literally. And, and most documentaries are not made for even a million. Most documentaries are made for the, significantly less, you know, anywhere from like, you know, 300,000 to like, you know, I don't know, eight or 900,000. Uh, very lucky ones get over a million. Uh, <laughs> but, but most of the ones you've seen, at least in the last 10 years, don't. Uh, and especially something like this, which did not have studio backing. It didn't have like a, like some gigantically wealthy benefactor being like, here, go to town. Like you guys did this by, by scraping it together, doing fundraisers, going out there and, you know, hitting the shoe leather. It's I, sound, true. I sound like I'm out of the 30s when I say that. It's like, <laughs> I know, I, was, I, I never, never heard that one. Hitting the shoe leather. It's like, hitting the shoe, shoe leather. leather. I don't know where that came from. When I think of shoe leather, I just think of like slipping. And I was like, oh God, <laughs> we just stumbled. <laughs> um, yeah, I, we had cultivation parties. We had house parties. We, you know, 
emailing everyone. Um, we went to Good Pitch. We went to all these forums. We went to financing opportunities, different labs. I mean, I, I would say 65% of working on this project was fundraising. It's a full-time job. It's, and, and, you know, honestly, it's like, the, you know, I would love to see you guys on a panel of like, you know, how to, how to do that. Like, you know, because it has changed a lot in the last five years, like how to raise money for a documentary and where documentaries get seen has changed a lot because, you know, I mean, this is on Netflix and you have easily more eyeballs on this film than probably most documentaries released combined. Yeah. We're thrilled. I, you know, like what Amy was talking about earlier, it was crushing uh, to lose the opportunity to share this filming community in the film festivals that we were planning on going to. You know, Sundance wrapped up and we were ready. We were going to go to Copenhagen. We were going to go to London. We were going to go to Amsterdam. We were going to go to Berlin. We were going to go to Greece. And then, of course, you know, being able to share this at the queer film festivals, we were going to, you know, be at, at the Castro Theater for Frameline. And then, you know, and that we were really excited for that. And like, again, what Amy was saying, this film was made in such isolation in the process that being able to share it and hear the audience and feel the audience and be in those conversations was a huge loss. There was a lot of loss and a lot of grief. And we really didn't know where Netflix would land. We didn't know if we'd have a home. So by the time we ended up on Netflix and had this release and seeing this response um, is, is overwhelming. And, and incredible, and to have this opportunity for this platform to reach people in 191 million countries, um, it's really thrilling. And, I, and, and, and we are still committed to getting this film to people who don't have access to Netflix, you know, and figuring out the ways to do that, because it does need to be seen by people who need to see it the most. Um, and we're committed to doing that. And at Outfest, at the DGA. Yeah, I want to see you at the screening. DGA at Outfest. When that... Maybe Outfest wants to host a special screening for us once we're back in public. That would be oh, nice. that would be so I nice. I bet they will. Those that Outfest people have been so That would be amazing and perfect, and I think you should Outfest call them up Outfest has right been now. incredible. They were incredible hosts at Sundance. They had panels for us. They had parties for us. Yeah. Outfest has been incredibly supportive. I would love to work with Outfest. know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. I'm going to do a disclosure of my own, and I worked a little bit on this film uh, a couple of years ago. Sam uh, came to my, because I work as an editor, uh, to my edit suite, and we made uh, a few pieces for a fundraiser that Sam was having, Sam and Amy were having at Abigail Disney's place. And before Sam came over, there was this moment, and it was literally like 10 minutes before, I looked on my wall, and you have to understand I'm a film nerd. And there's a gigantic poster of Dress to Kill on my wall because I'm a huge Brian De Palma fan. And literally, it struck me right then, 10 minutes before Sam was supposed to arrive, like, 
oh no, am, am I going to be perceived? Am I going to be perceived as the enemy? Oh no! Oh my god! It was That's it was a moment, hilarious. and I actually went to Sam, and I was just like, Sam, like I just want to show you. There's a poster here. I feel terrible. <laughs> but but one of the things I do want to ask you is for people like me who are film nerds or who like the culture, who like you know, Dress to Kill was a very important movie for me um, because of the filmmaking, not necessarily thematics. But I cannot see that film without admitting and understanding it is a wildly problematic film, especially when it comes to trans issues, because it's it's like it's like trans horror fiction. It's like no, it's like crazy. It's not even in any way grounded in reality. Trans is basically used as a, a plot device, uh, like a, like a, like a, a psycho 2.0, basically. Brian De Palma did it. Um, but for people who like love that film or others or like Silence of the Lambs or any of these films that are brought up in the documentary as being problematic, and they are, like how do you, how does an ally kind of like, like, ju like, justify that. It's like, can we watch it and, like, enjoy it? Or, like, do, it's, like, it's hard because I don't even know how, what question I'm asking. It's like, am I just asking to be absolved of guilt? I'm not even sure. I think what, what I think you're asking, if I may, is that <laughs> a bigger conversation that's going on now with films like Gone with the Wind, right? Yeah. As we reckon anew with our legacy of white supremacy in America, Gone with the Wind has been pulled from the air airways because, like, oh, we can't, it's so racist. And I, for or Song me, of the South the, or something like that's even way, more problematic. The way I, there's a zillion problematic films around race in this country, like right. So we just we're gonna pull all of them. Then we, what what films are we gonna be left with? <laughs> so I think the work though is to is to we can love critically. We can love the films critically. For me, there are beautiful things about. I think Vivian Lee is divine and Gone with the Wind. I think that oh, is yeah. like one of the great performances that we've ever seen. Hattie McDaniel is. A revelation. I mean, I, I mean come on. Yeah. But I, the very first time, this is the thing too about being black. The very first time I saw Gone with the Wind, I think I remember I was in third grade because I was I became obsessed with Scarlett O'Hara and I got a fan at Six Flags and I started fanning myself like Scarlett. <laughs> and that led, that literally led to like me going to a conversion therapist because my third grade oh. teacher was like, oh my god, like, was like you're you're going to end up in New Orleans wearing your dress if you don't get him into therapy right away because I was sitting in class fanning myself like Scarlett O'Hara, oh. um, from the fan I got at Six Flags. So, <laughs> but when I saw <laughs> this really happened. So when I saw Gone with the Wind the first time though with my mother. I understood immediately that the mammy character was a stereotype of black folks. Like my mother right. was like, girl, she didn't say girl, but she said, <laughs> could you imagine? But in my mind, she was like, girl, this is some, this is a bullshit. Basically, like this is not, this is some racist stuff that like black people have been, de have been dealing with in cinema for a very long time. This is a problem. Like in third grade, my mother was like, no. So this is, do you know what I mean? Like this is like, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, right? Like the, the, whose parents were like, whose parents were like this, okay, we're watching this, but no girl. Like, she didn't say girl, but no girl, <laughs> this, this is not cute. <laughs> so then, so then. I've, Your mom I've sounds still, really cool. I just want to say like. My mom all. is awesome. My mom is awesome. <laughs> so imperfect, but awesome. So, as, as am I. <laughs> I'm awesome and imperfect. But the point is that we were a, in third grade, I was able to have a conversation with my mother about how Gone with the Wind was a problem because of race, right? In third grade. So if I can, as a third, and understood it, 
still like wanted to be Scarlett O'Hara, right? <laughs> and but still understood that this was this was racist and a problem, like very early on. So we can have these conversations with our kids. We can have these conversations with each other, with ourselves, and then appreciate. Okay, and also understand. I mean, Judith Bethulia. That that is a major film in our history, in the history of of understanding film. But then we can say understand that that the filmmaking is crucial in, uh, in terms of what how we understand filmmaking now. But D.W. Griffith did some really propagandistic, racist, right. effed up stuff. So yeah. we can hold, we should be able to hold two thoughts and potentially contradictory thoughts at the same time. And I think for everyone who loves cinema, we have to. And I think that because their history is fraught with transphobia, sexism, racism, homophobia, it is fraught. It just is. And so that's part of it. And so it, instead, instead of being in denial, and I think there's so many people where, as monuments are coming down, and that, and can I just say that monuments coming down is the least of least that we can do, right? <laughs> it is a very absolute least like yeah. virtue signaling thing we can do. We, we don't need any more Robert E. Lee statues anywhere. Like, but we, it's we the just very don't. least we can do. And I think that all all the people who are like we're trying to, we're, we're, I'm not interested in racing in racing history, but we have to acknowledge that it happened. Yeah. We have to own the story. Brene Brown, a few weeks ago on her podcast, like got me together and I got the world together when she reminded us of her beautiful quote that when we deny our stories, that story defines us. When we deny it, right? If we're in the closet, for example, like that begins to define us. But when we own our stories, we can write a brave new ending, she says. And she said that the United States has not owned the story around white supremacy and racism in this country. We have not owned the story yet. So we, we, keep, we can't write the brave new ending because we keep... It, we keep being defined by it because we have not owned it yet. And so then we, that's what we must do with our history of film. And... That does not mean we throw out all the beautiful, lovely things that we like about. I still love Silence of the Lambs. I still love that film, and am horrified by the um, yeah. Um, what is it? What is the character? Uh, Buffalo, Buffalo Bill. Bill. Thank yeah. you. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this is the thing. I'm like, I know that there's a character name, but I'm trying to block it out. Well, they tried to get around it with those those lines of dialogue. Like they they this the band aid. I think you even talk about. I don't remember how it's referred. But how divine. How divine is Jodie Foster in Sound Solid? Just divine. Oh, she's amazing. How divine is Anthony Hopkins in Sound They're great. It is like one of the, it, the two, what the, the performances are just, for me as an actor to behold. They, I literally have studied those performances. I've like paused scenes and just studied them. And, and you should, you should study the filmmaking, but then also understand that this is some seriously transphobic, effed up, stuff going on at the same time. Right. Well said. <laughs> I was looking at Sam up there and Sam had finger over the mouth. I'm like, does he want to say something? No, no, no. I mean, I think this, what Laverne, you know, has so beautifully said is, you know, a big part of what our, what we wanted to do with the film is, yes, let's hold people accountable. Let's be critical. Let's, let's do better next time, but let's do it all with love. That's very cool. Sam, you talked about Time Magazine's 2014 story which was the transgender tipping point, mm. which is now kind of somewhat infamous, like mm-hmm. as being kind of like well-intentioned, but a little bit, uh, well, harebrained is the first thing that it comes to mind, but that's probably not fair. Um, just not getting it. Was that part of the impetus to like do this documentary? Or um, Yes, that was certainly a moment for me. I, I, when was that, 20? So I had been making films for about 10 years at that point. 
um, and had been very passionate about visibility. My films have always centered on trans lives and trans issues, um, coming from a social justice place, coming from an advocacy place. And when I saw Laverne on the cover of Time magazine and was watching Laverne's rise to fame, I was very excited because I knew of Laverne's activist work in New York before that. Um, she was very present um, in, in, in the activist circles. And she was publishing and writing on, on a lot of these issues. And so, you know, it was clear that she was gonna use this podium, right? She would use this moment um, for the benefit of the community in every way possible, which she has obviously proven to do. Um, so I was thrilled, right? I saw her on the cover of the magazine in this gorgeous blue dress and she's looking down at the camera, like really empowered. And then there's this line, the transgender tipping point. And I just, you know, it, it gave me pause because I just, yes, Laverne, this incredible human, um, we, we, we couldn't be luckier than to have Laverne as this sort of celebrity spokesperson. Um, but that was not the reality for most trans people. And as Laverne says so beautifully in the film, you have to be really careful when one person is elevated, right? And you have to be careful not to think that means the rest of the community is better, right? There was no tipping point for the rest of the community. It was a tipping point for Hollywood to understand that we exist. Right. <laughs> and it was a tipping point where a lot of non-trans people were getting awards and patting themselves on the back <laughs> for telling trans stories. You know, there was a tipping point for that. I think it was more of a tipping point for non-trans people acknowledging that we were alive, that trans people are here. Um, but again, it, it was very ahistorical. I mean, it's like it's like people calling the election of Barack Obama proof that America's post-racial. Post-race, yeah. Which, which was just like, now you look at that, you're like, wow. Like, that is, yeah. that is about as Caucasians trying to make themselves feel better as possible. That is max, that is 10 out of 10 on whatever that scale is. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's that it's, we want... It's like we want to be done with stuff and we, right. we haven't done the work to be done with it, right? Yeah. That we haven't done the work is, is exceptional as Barack Obama is on so many different levels. The Black Lives Matter movement started under his presidency, right? right? That like, and, and Cornel West says it so beautifully that a black president, a black attorney general, a black homeland security person could not get this together, you know, that like Ferguson still happened. Like, yeah. And Laverne, remember when marriage equality passed and Obama mm -hmm. had a bunch of people at, at mm -hmm. the White House and Janicet got booed out, right? This woman spoke up about trans Latina women, you know, immigrating here and being held in detention. And Barack was like, not in my house. And she got like booed and hissed out the way like Sylvia Rivera got booed on the stage. So it's, it's, it's very, you know, I... I love the Obamas. I absolutely adore them. I, I just, I love them. Um, I've gotten to meet them a few times. I voted for him twice, obviously. Um, if that's not obvious. Um, <laughs> but but they're, they're, how do we, how do we push forward with dissenting voices? I think that, that how do we, how do we continue to push? And I think that like we, it's a reminder that it's not enough to just have or Cornel West sells black faces in high places that like that the policies need to change. I mean, I think I think Im Obama's immigration policy he deported more until recent until 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 Trump. Yeah. He he um, deported more you know 
folks than any other president in, in history. That's that's just a fact. You know, mm-hmm. there were drone attacks. There was a, there was a growing of the militaristic state under under Obama. And and, I, and we can again we can hold contradictory. You can love Obama. I love Obama. I do. I still love him. I still he. But he also did more for the trans community than any other president in history, more right. for the LGBTQ community than any other president in history. So we can, these things can happen, it be happening at the, same, at the same time. We can hold these contradicting things and it does not mean that we are anti-Obama. Um, but it just means that like, what, how do we, what is, what is justice? What I think what justice is what love looks like in public, Cordell West again, here he here. Cleveland West keeps coming up a lot lately for me. <laughs> what is, what is justice really? And the virtue signaling of the affirmative action moments. And I think I, I think affirmative action is important, but it's again, it's like tokenizing folks and putting them in high places does not is not justice. It's right. not justice for who are the most marginalized folks, who are the people who are struggling the most, and what are we doing for them? And and and, and I think if we look at that, it's it's a sad, sad, sad state of affairs. Well, do you think that the United States is starting with with twenty twenty happening? is starting to actually do the work. I think I think people on the ground are pushing, but I think what what has to happen unfortunately, and I think the push we're seeing some 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 things happen on a local level with policing and, and policing is a local issue probably more than anything else and you know, I guess the House of Representatives passed their little bill. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> that that Mitch McConnell will probably never bring to the floor, but I we if if political change is going to happen, it has to corporate interest is so deeply dug in and rich people have bought off our politicians to such an extent that our politicians are doing the bidding of corporations and rich people and not the bidding. We have to fundamentally change the way our elections are funded. I think that is the, and I don't know if there is a political will because politicians get it, go get it to get to Washington and get rich. You know, they get rich and there's no incentive for them to change a system that they're benefiting from. Yeah. But but the majority of Americans are not. So we have to change the way our elections are funded and the legal bribery that's happening has to stop. And then maybe we'll get poli- maybe we'll get politicians that are there to do the will of the people. Maybe we'll get politicians who are interested in, you know, justice for the everyday person. I think it starts with campaign finance reform on a governmental level, but I think yeah. we as citizens have to keep pushing and keep protesting and keep fighting and letting our voices be heard and then that needs to translate into feeling in our senses and mm-hmm. to voting we mm-hmm. have to vote and it's even even if you're not inspired by joe biden and i'm not i'm getting real raw today even if you're not inspired <laughs> by joe biden i'm going to vote for him but then we also need to vote it's a down ballot who are yep. our governments basically the way our um um state lines are going to be drawn for the next 10 years yep. it's going to be based on who is in the state legislatures this year yep. so v- who we vote for down ballot is going to be really crucial for how our lines are drawn and then whether our we have democracy right the way the extent to which we are um congressional districts have been gerrymandered like several cases have gone to the supreme court and the supreme court has done what they've done around gerrymandering we need to get lines that are about <laughs> the actual population right the fact that democrats won and I'm, i've been an independent for all my whole life i actually just changed my registration to democrat i digress just so I can vote in primaries. But the, in 2018, the fact that the Democrats were able to take the House with the extent to which um, things were gerrymandered means they had yeah. to win 
so big. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not inspired by who's at the top of the ticket, what is happening down ballot, it's going to affect your life. It yeah. really does. And so if everyone who's not voting, who thinks it's all BS, this, this shit affects your life. It just does. So please vote. Fill out your census. The way resources are allocated, the census is crucial. The fact that um, um, places in uh, Mississippi, they don't have enough ventilators, it's because of the census, right? It's because they're like, we don't have resources because they don't have enough big enough population there. School funding. School funding. We got to fill out our census um, mm -hmm. this year, too. Sorry. Laverne, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real and uh, very serious. Have you ever considered running for public office? Because if you have, if you do, I will donate immediately. How much? I'll I'll give a hundred. I'm not a very rich. I'll give. I'm not a very. I'm no, no hundred. Oh Jesus! Like what? Do you, yes, because I get rich doing podcasts. No, I'll, do, I'll, I'll I would I would literally like donate five hundred dollars. I will say that Can right I tell now. You, if you run if you someone, run for office, I will do that. Someone else has asked me to run for office, and I what I the last time someone asked me this, I said. Could you imagine the attack ads of me be in great. my glam room, in my glam room, in a bikini, <laughs> dancing to Beyonce on Instagram Listen, in the campaign ads? Like, you don't, do you, you don't do you understand? There would be a lot of people who would vote for you, <laughs> and that might help. You don't know. If, this is not necessarily a liability. <laughs> you know. Oh my God, politics! I mean, you know. I, I, but we I, all have I, to be involved. I mean, this is this interesting. Was, I literally have never considered it before. In this moment, I'm thinking like it would be an interesting experiment if I if Laverne Cox ran if, for office. If you do, and I had any part of it on this podcast, I will lose my fucking mind. And everything that happened, like the the attack ads, and like, but then how does one make? How does one do politics? Right, the the, the work of doing real because you have to be political to do politics, right? Like, and all the. Um, you know, scratch back scratching that happens look, behind look, the scenes. Look at all AOC. The she seems to get away with it and like be pretty yeah, real. But like, how do you how do you maintain like being really for the people and being a politician? AOC is doing a really good job. There, there was that one bill though that that I was like, mm. you got to you got to do what you got to do. But but you know how you do it. You do it the same way Sam's gonna like forget about the three percent. <laughs> you reframe it. You see what you want, you see what needs to happen, and you do that, and you do the right thing, and you keep your own ethics and your own center there. But 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 we we would need a wave of progressive candidates taking office to upset the establishment. That is, the Democratic establishment is dug in. They really yeah. are. But they, you could be they, one. I mean, AOC kicked out that the primary that other guy, and there was another primary like in Kentucky. Like where, where is that at? Bowman in, um, what, I forget the district in New York, who's like ahead right now, who's um, just probably going to unseat that other guy, dude who's been there for like 50, 11 years. It's, it can so, happen. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, be, and to be involved is to be a part of that. It's like, and I think that one of the things that the, the establishment right now doesn't have, and I think this, to bring it full circle back to the movie, it's like, you know, basically we're in a time of a great societal change where a lot of people I think are waking up and saying, I don't want it to be this way. And whether that's in like, like politics or that's in like media with representations of any kind of minorities, whether they're gay or black or trans or whatever, like people are making the difference just like you guys did with this film. Thank you. And I think like, and I, the reason I have not run for politics is I think there's a lot of different ways to let your voice be for heard. Sure. There's a for lot sure. of different ways. And this, and this is what this with, with, with wonderful collaborators like Sam and Amy, this is, this is what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. So. And imagine if other celebrities, other people with the sort of platform that Laverne had used their platform yes. for 
political gains. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't, people are scared. You know, they're worried about their career options, you know, and, and also I wish they how, were as emboldened. But how astute are you going to be? Everyone is not, it's real tricky delving into, even, even like I'm not a politician, but like a lot of the work I do is political work. And it is like, it requires a level of research, very like constantly thinking about like how something may be misinterpreted and interpreted and i do this i i tweet myself i do my own instagram post there's i don't have like a consultant consulting me on like what i should you know i this is my own research and my own heart and mind and i I mean i have people who i who i look to for advice but it's a lot of work and then i and it's a lot of work in addition to trying to be a really good actor and be a good artist and a good producer. And it's just, it's a lot, you know? And this is why, maybe why I have no social life. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot going on. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I know that Outfest has changed a lot in the last couple of years. They have a trans fellowship for actors. There's a trans summit. It's like, you know, it just feels like people are more taking more into consideration the T and LGBT than they hadn't previously. I think when marriage equality became the law of the land five years ago, I saw a lot of organizations saying like, because most of the LGBTQ organizations, their energies were focused on marriage. And after marriage equality became the law of the land, they were like, well, what are we going to do now? And so, you know, and and trans folks were, were, were around and they were like, oh, okay, well, this is a group of people who we've kind of, you know. Not looked at for a while. Yeah, there's yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I think a lot of it had to do with where we were politically uh, post-marriage equality. I think a lot of it was about that. And I think a lot of it too was about the decades of activism that trans folks have done and our allies have done that have been like, um, what are you doing? You know, and acknowledging the history of of um, Enda, of Sonda, that, that became gender in New York State, for example. I always mm-hmm. like to remind people of that. So those, these are legislative things that people to go but, into all But that. One, one thing I want to ask is, what more needs to happen? Oh, wow. I know it's a tough question, but it's like, like, I, like what again, would... Again, who's, who's telling stories and who has access and resources to tell stories in terms of what, if we're talking about filmmaking, right. and what are we doing to cultivate diverse uh, storytellers. What, um, and this is and this is across the board, this is everyone. I think, you know, the fellowship program that we have for Disclosure, I'm having, we're, I'm in the process of developing scripted projects and I've had conversations with my manager about how do we do something like Disclosure for all my, all my um, projects going forward. I don't know how yet, I don't know what kind of pushback we're gonna get from networks, you know, and, and production companies, but these are the questions I'm asking myself, and I think these are the questions the industry should be asking in terms of how we develop a diverse roster of storytellers in front of and behind the camera. So that they, these are training, pro, you know, training programs for actors, but then for screenwriters, for gaffers, for, you know, lighting technicians, sound technicians. So we have diverse storytellers and then getting them access to training and then jobs and then, um, and then and then power and decision making, right? Mm-hmm. Again, not to take power in the in exist in an existing corrupt system, but to change the nature of power. And I don't think it's and again, it's not just about diversity for diversity's sake to cl- check off a box, but it's about diversity of thought. It's about 
different ways of thinking and being um, in the work and in telling different ways of telling stories, right? We've seen that trans folks have been present in, in films for a very long time. Disclosure teaches us that lesson, but it doesn't necessarily mean that trans people were empowered by those images. It doesn't right. mean that we were represented. We were seen, but we weren't really represented. So those are the things we took, I think, to be careful about as we um, hopefully um, diversify our voices and in, in, in our filmmaking and storytelling. I'm talking a lot, but you're I, amazing. I feel so bad. Two I'm, things I want to ask you guys. We're recording this in midsummer in 2020, and we are all still under this pandemic. And uh, the numbers right now just kind of shot up, which is not great to see. Um, how are you guys getting on? Since I've been talking a lot, somebody else talks. Amy, how have you been getting along? <laughs> oh. I don't even know how to answer that. I, it's, um, <laughs> you know, when we were working for so many years to make this film, the, you know, the dream was to show it in community. And so much of it was made in isolation. Um, and that was going to be the kind of, you know, the payoff and the outcome was to share the, all of this work um, and the ideas in community. Um, so, you know, and we did, um, thankfully, get to have a world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival and have, you know, one experience of um, of watching with an audience, although that was, you know, uh, well, we had four screenings. Um, Sam is, is rightly correcting <laughs> me, but um, in, you know, with one kind of audience, you know, and so that you know, was, was brilliant and satisfying on, um, on many levels, but not on all levels. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things I was really looking forward to was, was watching it in community with other LGBTQ folks, um, and having conversation and that experience of seeing something, experiencing something, and then you go out and you have dinner and you discuss it and you, yeah. uh, uh, have a follow-up conversation the next day because we've all been in the same room. And that's one little piece of, you know, what, you know, we're all missing and, and that, that hurts. And I, I really, I miss that a lot. It'll and, return. Um, yeah. It'll return. No return. One thing. One thing I do want to ask all three of you, unless Laverne, you want to answer that question. No, Amy, that was that was beautiful, and it is one of the. It's one of those things, and you feel people wanting to have conversations. You, I go on Twitter, and there's so much. People are tweeting so much. Thank you, everyone, for who's tweeting. People are tweeting so much and are so moved, and that's so beautiful. And you just you feel people wanting to have the conversations, and it's like let's. You want to hear from the people. I want to hear from the people. You know, yeah. I want to hear from like the folks. You know. But the last question I ask everybody. Um, Aside from the advice, just do it, what advice would you give young up-and-coming artists or even established artists who are trying to make their way through this period? Through COVID? Uh, just, just, you know, uh, yeah, COVID or, or just, you know, trying to find funding or trying to find their voice amidst all the chaos. And, I mean, it's not just COVID right now. You know, we had protests. We had, we have, you know, Trump is in the White House. And it's like there's, there's just a lot of stuff you have to, like, navigate every day. I'm seeking that advice. Uh, I don't know if I have any to give. Okay, what, well. what I always say, what I always say when I when I when I meet young people is um, the only reason I am here today, still making art, is because I love it. It's because I love storytelling. I love acting, and the love and the passion 
for what I have to say, what I have to express, and the way of expressing it has overridden everything else. Every other doubt, every other obstacle, it makes me want to cry, everything, um, every person who said, no, this isn't possible, this career isn't possible. When I was studying acting, you know, in the early 2000s, wanting to be a, a working actor and have a mainstream career, there were literally no trans people who had mainstream acting careers at the time. And yes, I wanted to give up many times. I almost gave up multiple times, but I love it. I love this. And the love is um, what has sustained me and the passion is what has sustained me. And it's kept me going to acting classes. It's kept me going to auditions. It's kept me trying to figure out what stories I want to tell. And then if you can find collaborators, if, you, if you're lucky enough to find someone who is like-minded, who is really good at what they do, who can support the work in some way, uh, and you can support their work, then I'm just so thrilled and humbled to have gotten to work with, with Sam and Amy on this for you know the little contribution I've made to Disclosure over these many years, because it has just been one of the greatest joys of my life. And, and, and Sam says it's, it's, it's you know, a combination of his life's work. It feels like that for me too, in so many ways. For so many years, I've wanted to do a film like this and tell a story like this. And, and it feels like things should be different after Disclosure, right? That, that, the, that the world of trans storytelling should be different after this film. And that's exciting. And so having a, having a sense of love, passion for what you do, and a sense of purpose coupled with that, along with the hard work of getting really good at it. That like, it's not, so yes, you need the passion, you need to love, and that needs to be coupled with a purpose. And you need to be committed to doing it well. You need to be committed to being good at what you do. And that is really a 10,000 plus hours is real. And that, so if that, if that means acting classes, if that means interning on films and being a PA and doing whatever you have to do to get the skill set necessary to be really good at what you do. And, and, and um, Carl Ford, who is a teacher at Susan Batson Studio in a scene study class years ago, it was probably just 2003 ish. He said um, to all the students, he said, if your only option to act was doing podunk dinner theater somewhere in Idaho, would you still want to be an actor? And he said, if the answer is no, you should do something else. Because most actors don't ever work. We're told we're too tall, too short, too fat, too thin, too black, too white, too skinny, too fat. And we mostly deal with rejection. That is what this business is. And if you do not love it, then you should do something else because it's not worth it. You know, we did a we did a panel with MPA with the Motion Picture Association and the host. After the panel wrapped up, he said, you know, he, you know, in the conversations, he kept saying the the LGBT community, my community, the community I'm part of, and it was just kind of like, okay, he said that a couple times, and then afterwards, he was like, I just want you guys to know that was the first time I've ever been out publicly. Oh my god! Whoa. Wow! <laughs> you know, just to yeah. know that yeah, that's something I never would have thought this film could do is kind of create that uh, space. And and um, I, I don't know what the word is, but somehow it's making people feel safer, inspired. But there's also a safety there, you know. It's and then mm. feeling like okay, enough people are hearing our stories 
that that somehow makes you feel safer in the world, right? Um, how brave every single interviewee yeah. is in our film. Yeah. What everyone shares, the vulnerability, the wisdom, the beauty is so, it's contagious. It's contagious. And, and the, the work that every single trans person involved in our film has done on themselves to, to be, to arrive, to show up and, and, and bring what they brought to disclosure is it's inspiring. I think it's like, okay, if this if this group of people who have dealt with this history and this legacy can come 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 out as beautiful and as and as amazing and as shining as the folks in disclosure are, then what am I what what am I afraid of? Yeah. What am I afraid of? Because I think most of us have had moments where we have sold our own worthiness short, where we have 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 not seen the divine in ourselves. That we have that, that we have not understood how anointed we are, and that, and and and, th and that is and that's what trans internalized transphobia does. That's what internalized white supremacy does. It it devalues us. You know, when Franz Franz Fanon wrote the title "Black Skin, White Mask," you know, it, it, that's what he was talking about. How these systems work to oppress us from the inside. And sometimes we need to have someone else see us so we can see it in ourselves. Well, I 100% love all three of you and I 100% love this film so much and you just made me choke up and I can't thank you enough for being on here. Sam Fader, Amy Shoulder, Laverne Cox, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being on here. Our pleasure to be here. I'm really emotional right now. And this has been The Outcast, presented by Outfest. For more, Go to outfest.org slash The Outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Ismail El-Sharif and Alan Konigsberg. The Outcast is mixed by Craig Lawrence Smith. Special thanks to Damian Navarro and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next time. Mm -hmm.